Coming to you from Cascade Church in Portland, Oregon, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm on tour right now promoting my new book, Finding God in the Waves, which by the way, Portland is for sale in the lobby. And uh, I've got several more dates coming up on the tour. January 21st, I'll be in Grand Haven, Michigan. January 29th, I'll be in Mableton, Georgia. February 2nd, San Francisco, California. February 15th at Northwest Nazarene University in Idaho. Uh, February 19th, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And March 29th in Houston, Texas with my friends at BioLogos. If you'd like to see me on tour, just go to findinggodinthewave.com slash tour. I'd love to see you on the road. Also, if you can't see me on tour, but you're interested in a signed copy of my new book, just go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash giveaway to learn how you can possibly win a copy of the new book. Sorry if the announcements are weird. I had red wine. We've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. I am one of your atheist listeners. Um, thank you. You're not alone. Yeah. It's uh, like 10% of the audience. Yeah. Grew up Baptist, lost my faith in college, mm-hmm. and found your work a few years ago at a time when the emotional loss of God finally showed up for me. And I've tried out the stuff in your book about sort of building God in your brain. Yes. Um, and it, it actually works. It really does. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I have a belief but I have a simulation of a belief, and it's hmm. pretty close, okay. and I like it. Um, my question is about non-theism. Mm-hmm. You still use that word in your book and in podcasts since then. I mm-hmm. think I know what you mean by it. Um, but to get to that, my question is, in your opinion, if all sentient and conscious life, either on Earth or elsewhere, stopped, is would what you call God still be a thing? Ow! <laughs> Okay, first of all, we're going to have some fun tonight. First question, Portland brings the thunder. Okay, first of all, and I don't want to be snarky, I'm pretty sure all beliefs are a simulation of belief based on my epistemology, but um, I understand us all to be like 86 billion neurons telling a story to themselves, and we're just building a model of reality with variable fidelity, and that's not really plain English, so let me unpack that. Um, I used to be a theist when I was a Baptist. And why was I a theist? Because I believed in God. Well, here's the problem when people say they believe in God. There's just like so many different things people mean when they say they believe in God. And this becomes like a thing people fight about. Just ask some evangelicals if Muslims worship the same God, right? And some people will say, absolutely, we all worship the same God. And other people say, whoa, 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 we don't worship the same God. 
I've learned sometimes I don't actually worship the same God as some of my evangelical brothers and sisters. We all mean something different when we say God, but if you are a theist, if you're into theism, it means that you believe a particular set of things about God, namely that God is a being with will and consciousness and agency. Now, those assumptions may teeter-totter into a gazillion other implications. For example, in the Christian church, there are uh, Calvinists who universally love this podcast. <laughs> and, uh, and, then there's, but, and then in Calvinists, there's like four and five-point Calvinists, right? Like not everybody goes to all five points. Not everybody's hardcore like that. And then you have like Arminism, right? Which is like... Uh, boom, Wesleyan, Methodist in the house, uh, and, uh, and other denominations, which makes a different set of assumptions about what theism means. What do they share in common? God is a being with will and agency and a plan for humanity. Then there are atheists. Now, I've been an atheist. Now, some atheists don't like me saying that I've been an atheist. Because, <laughs> like, you can't unbe an atheist. Once you're an atheist, you're always an atheist. And I'm like, have you been talking to my Baptist friends? It's like, it's like once saved, always saved. Once logical, always logical. Um, but what is an atheist? The, the most broad definition of atheism is a lack of belief in any god or gods. Well, guess what? With those two positions... We are not covering 100% of the ideas about God. Go ask a Buddhist if they're a theist or an atheist. And Buddha would say, does God exist? What a ridiculous notion. God can't be said to exist or not exist. And an atheist goes, that's hooey. And an evangelical goes, that's hooey, right? Like, it's odd how they both have a similar epistemology. So I can't call myself a theist because I can't positively assert all those things I just talked about in Attributes of God. And I can't call myself an atheist anymore because I don't lack a belief in any god or gods. What about a pantheist? A pantheist believes the universe itself is God. Some pantheists believe the universe is conscious. Some pantheists don't believe the universe is conscious. Either way, they are not theists or atheists. Panentheists believe that the universe is God plus more. Physicists go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you don't understand what the word universe means. Uh, so, uh, igtheists, who I love, say these words are so soupy, we can't even make a claim of atheism or theism or pantheism. So I, I identify strongly with them. But a guy named John Shelby Spong, who uh, was a bishop in... 
What tradition? I can't remember. Episcopalian, Anglican, kind of the same. So, uh, <laughs> he introduced me to Christian non-theism. Now, I'd read about non-theism in a Buddhist context, but he talked about non-theism in a Christian context, and it's basically, I'm not an atheist. I have some knowledge of understanding of God, but I can't go all the way to theism, okay? So, that's me. It's kind of like, it's like the ultimate nonconformist religious label. Like, I'm not with anybody, right? And um, now here's the strange thing about me. If you, if you like try to pin me down, like you force me to go with like what my empiricist approach to reality, like I'll be like, I can totally back that up. I'm basically a pantheist, right? Like if you've heard my axioms, which I can't believe that's the thing that's popular on the internet, but the world, the world is weird. Uh, <laughs> I, I say that God is at least the set of forces that create and sustain the universe, pantheism. But I, I put a little extra on there, as experienced via a psychosocial model rooted in human brains. And with that definition, if sentient beings cease to exist, what I identify as God would no longer exist. Empirically. Ah, but... I'm not just an empiricist, I'm also a contemplative mystic. And uh, what does that mean? Our rational, neurological faculty, when paired with empiricism and the sciences, also called methodological physicalism, just to prove I read a lot, uh, <laughs> is really good at helping us uncover facts about how the universe operates. It's better than any other mode of thinking we have at uncovering facts about the physical universe. How fast do you have to go to get out of a planet's gravity well? Methodological physicalism is your dude or dudette, depending on what gender you choose to use in that sentence. Uh, but it doesn't speak to the entirety of the human experience. Right, so we all know this, but science doesn't speak to beauty. Science doesn't make moral judgments. Science can't tell you how, what to do with scientific process, progress. Science can say, here's how you split an atom. It doesn't say whether you should use that to power a city or destroy one. For that, we need other types of thinking. Now, you can have secular philosophies that help you make those decisions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that non-religious people are immoral or amoral, not my bag. What I am saying is for me, when I contemplate a God that reaches back when I reach out, my life is different. And I achieve a brain state that isn't possible for me to achieve through purely scientific inquiry. And through my mystical practice of faith, which I justify empirically through neuroscience, because I'm weird, I come to all sorts of ideas about God that are deeply meaningful to me, but I cannot possibly defend rationally. Things like God is love. Things like the thing that animates 
the four fundamental forces of physics, the thing that animates the Higgs boson is ultimately love. And because it's ultimately love, there is a Christ that is part of God that invites all of creation into reconciliation and healing. That is a thoroughly non-scientific idea. I would expect, if I asserted that as a fact claim, to be laughed out of the room. It doesn't mean that doesn't change my life. It doesn't mean that some of those ideas aren't the most important, beautiful parts of my experience. It means that when I contemplate a God that reaches back, a God whose fundamental character and nature is love, that sometimes I walk through the Atlanta airport on this tour and I just see the light of the divine in every person's face. And sometimes I cry walking through the airport. And people think I'm crazy because I am. (laughs) But what I'm filled with is a desire to see everyone receive healing and grace and reconciliation. What I receive from that is whether or not it affects me personally, the way people of different gender and sexual identities are treated is a matter of great importance and not just dignity, but honoring the divine, right? It, 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 and neuroscience back this up. This belief that God is love changes the way I see the world in a fundamental way. So do I think empirically that God would continue if all sentient life continued, discontinued? No. Does my faith lead me to a hope that that God is something more than sentience reflecting on reality? Absolutely. And those hopes are some of the things I cherish the most. Hi, Mike. I'm Andy Zomerman. We met on my podcast a yes. couple of weeks ago. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you ever since the election, so sorry to bring it to a downer. Um, <laughs> when I talked to you on my podcast, uh, we had talked a little bit about faith wavering and being in that spot, mm-hmm. and uh, since the election, uh, my faith, it, it's dropped. I don't know what's real anymore and what's not. <laughs> you were talking about finding the divine in every person's eyes, and I look in every person's eyes and I see emptiness. I can't, I can't look at people anymore because I don't yeah. know what to think. And mm-hmm. it's affected me hugely. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question deals with uh, neurology, actually. I am in education, and there are millions of people who believed everything coming their way on Facebook or memes or whatever, just believed it blindly. At first, I was saying, well, it's education. You, you know, these people aren't educated, uneducated, not college degree, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not true. You don't have a college degree. You're smarter than me. No. Um, I <laughs> So what it's come down to is not so much a piece of paper with a college logo on it, but more of a growth mindset. And so what is it that leads some people to want and desire that growth mindset and other people to not have any desire to want to know more, but to blindly take that in? 
I don't understand what mm -hmm. it is, and I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. So is it something in your mind? Are some minds more, you know, have more plasticity? Is it a growing thing? Is it a heart thing? And if, you know, there is a God up there, why are some wanting to learn more, not wanting to learn more? Mm -hmm. That's my question. Good question. Um, let's, let's start with a disclaimer. I tweeted something. I think it was the night of the election. It said, things I am questioning. One, everything. <laughs> and that has been true. Uh, I've realized one thing. Just, just think about this for a second. I consider myself a student of human beh behavior. And I realized, if I take an evidence-based approach, Donald Trump knows more about human behavior than I do. So, that's a humbling realization. <laughs> I feel like he's playing some kind of insane five-dimensional chess right now um, where like he's, he's got us talking about Hamilton while he settled a $25 million lawsuit uh, and we're just like, yeah, we'll just talk about Hamilton, myself included, right? Because Hamilton's so awesome. <laughs> and they're like booing you know, uh, Count Dooku when he came into the... <laughs> Sorry. Listen, that's not who I am. I'm in a real dark place right now. So, Mike Pence, if you're listening, I apologize for calling you Count Dooku. Kind of. Uh, just don't, don't shock any of my gay friends with electricity and we'll be fine. Um, I'm serious. This is why I'm in such a dark place. This is the tension. This is the tension. Trump and Pence, what'd they do? They tapped into a deep well of fear in this country that is real. Uh, but to do that, they had to make even more people afraid. What's happening? I'll give you my best shot. With the disclaimer, I am very sure I'm wrong about a lot right now. I just haven't nailed down which things those are. I just feel like I'm in good company because all the people smarter than me were even more convinced Hillary would win this election. Um, first of all, human brains have a remarkable craving for certainty. Just an over-the-top desire for certainty related to the fact that we daydream. You have a part of your brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. It's right here. Uh, you have two of them because you have two halves of the brain. But because brains are mirrored, we say you have one of everything you have two of in your brain. So you have a, you have a prefrontal cortex, two prefrontal. Um, <laughs> and it does a lot of stuff. One of the things it does is constantly try to forecast the future. So you're sitting in this room and you're listening to me talk. And probably at least one person has thought what they would do if I passed out on stage and they had to take the mic. <laughs> and they thought about that. Or every question that's been asked, before I even started talking, they're like, I know how I would answer that. <laughs> or when I get done, they're like, I would have done a better job answering that. <laughs> and that's all the orbitofrontal cortex trying to protect you from social fallout because we're a social animal. Now, before we uh, were mainly obsessed with social things, we were also obsessed with um, surviving, which used to be harder, like pre-agriculture. 
So if every time it rained, you're like, is this valley about to flood? And you did a good job predicting when the valley would flood, you survived and passed on your DNA. And if you didn't, you didn't. So of course, we like it when our predictions are correct. And one thing um, conservative political ideologies and fundamentalist religious traditions do well is impart in its followers a sense of certainty, a certainty about moral issues, a certainty about belonging. There's a reason democratic and liberal coalitions are much more like herding cats because everyone doesn't have the same strong sense of singular identity. So we're not as certain about that. And this does not mean people are unintelligent or uneducated. They tend to be less informed, or even in the case of Trump voters, misinformed. And that's because when we invest in a particular belief system and it starts to tear apart from reality, we face an incredibly difficult choice to fundamentally reassess our worldview. I'm doing that right now. It's scary as hell. Or go, no, 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 no. And if you have enough social reinforcement, that's actually easier. And so you begin to take information that reinforces your position but doesn't actually map to things you can demonstrate in reality. This is not an odd thing for humans to do. Any humans. As soon as you apply a social label to yourself, studies have shown, you start to subconsciously filter out information that subverts the assumptions of that label. Whether that label is Christian, atheist, liberal, conservative, American, whatever the label is, as soon as you accept it, your brain really tries to defend it subconsciously. This would also be true if you call yourself a scientist, by the way. So what causes people to do the hard thing, live with less certainty, let reality check your assumptions more often? Well, actually, nobody's good at that. But allow room for other narratives. You get exposed to other stories. Why is it the Democratic coalition is so strong in urban areas? Because you can't live under the assumption that all Muslims are terrorists when there's five in your office. And like, you wait for them to be done at the microwave and there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> and like, what comes out of the microwave isn't C4, it's just popcorn, right? <laughs> And so, like, no matter what assumption you brought into the space, it got checked because of the exposure of another narrative, right? What caused me, Mr. Southern Baptist, to start questioning evangelical teachings on gay marriage? I had a really good gay friend. And all the scripture in the world, all the certainty I had about God's will in my life, had a hard time accepting the story of a guy who said... I hated it when I figured out I liked guys. I got married. I couldn't have sex with my wife. I got divorced. She wished me well. My parents kicked me out of the house. My church kicked me out of the town. And the only people 
who would accept me were in Miami, and suddenly I discovered like a hedonistic lifestyle, right? Like, we, like the church created that, that culture. It's exposure to multiple narratives that force us to question ours. And if you look at the strongholds of conservative politics in America, they're monocultural, right? They're rural areas. And what has, what, now, hold on, urbanites. Urban areas are very economically and racially segregated. We just, out of necessity, do the numbers and counter each other more often. But in rural areas, those areas of segregation aren't blocks but miles. So it's different schools, completely different schools. It's different institutions. And so no one ever subverts your cultural understanding. And when you attach that, when you have a marriage between a political party, mainly concerned with business interests, by the way, that's both of them, but I mean just one of them, the Republican Party, which is more open about it. When you attach that to a religion that says, we'll know the end is coming when you see these signs, and these signs look a lot like multiculturalism, it becomes a self-reinforcing paradigm. Our existence serves to reinforce the narrative. The fact that I'm a former Southern Baptist who now talks all the time about marriage equality, he's a false prophet, just like in Revelation. He's saying what itching ears want to hear, right? It reinforces the narrative. Here's the other problem for that group of people. Their way of life is actually disappearing. Um... My family, my entire family is from a rural farming community an hour east of the city of Tallahassee, which, of course, you all know is a thriving metropolis <laughs> of a couple hundred thousand people. But there's nothing in three hours in any direction of Tallahassee. It's all rural farmland. And I have watched since I was a kid every year less and less people live in that county. More and more factories close. More and more farms close. And my blood relatives in that city are in a state of ongoing poverty. They work hand to mouth, and they are terrified that their kids not only won't have a good life, will they even survive. So someone comes along and says, it's the Mexicans. And you go, you know what? All the, my family used to harvest food from fields for a living, and now they don't because immigrants do. To them, that's a completely valid narrative. They see the factory closed, and what was the announcement? We move production to China. So in the, in the urban areas, we go, would you people quit complaining? And would you get with the program with jobs? There's no, there's no ed, education access. So there's two things that are true. One, there is tremendous racism. There is a tremendous, tremendous closed mentality with all that certainty about certain assumptions. 
and America has been doing a disservice to those communities for years. But instead of saying, the problem is we're aggregating wealth at the top of the economy, the problem is we care primarily about GDP and not per capita GDP. We, someone comes along as a demagogue and says it's those people. And what scares me, and I don't want to be alarmist, that's exactly how the Nazis built their power. They told German workers who in a booming economy were suffering, it's the Jews and the gypsies. And today we say it's the Mexicans and the Muslims. What I've learned, I've been doing exactly the wrong thing. I've said, I'm not going to the farm anymore. You know, I had a, a cousin of mine call me a Hollywood liberal. I live in Tallahassee. <laughs> By the way, this cousin's like 12. So I know what the family says about me now. Um, and I, I went, oh man, I am so superior to my family. I see things so much more clearly. I'm going to go fight for equality by ignoring my family. So I invest all this energy in doing podcasts, which left-leaning people mainly listen to, and thoughtful conservatives. Don't get me wrong. I've learned anything from this election. There's a lot more conservatives that listen to these shows than I ever thought. But I try to give you all language. Why don't I use that language with my own family? Why don't I sit a blood relative and listen to their struggle? Why is it that I only call my senator to lobby for my friends of color? Why don't I call and talk about Madison County just down the road? I'm going to Thanksgiving. And I'm going to Christmas. And my mission this year is to listen and to empathize and to understand. Because I can't expect my black friends to go do that work. That's my job. I got to go do it. Donald Trump is the president. And it's my fault. And I should have known better. I understand the neuroscience, I understand the cognitive science behind the whole thing, and I still followed my own Pied Piper whistle of the inevitability of moral progress. My friends, progress is not inevitable. It comes at great cost. And sometimes we take steps forward, and sometimes we take giant leaps back. And I honestly believe that just happened. I didn't tweet it, but I was trying to give Trump a chance. But every appointment I've seen, every business dealing, I am deeply concerned for the state of our nation and global civilization to a point I've never been in my life. And the world will not be healed by me naming my family an adversary. The world will only be healed if I, a Christian, follow the teachings of Jesus about healing which is first I love God, and next I love my neighbor as myself. And who's my neighbor? The one who would never leave me by the side of the road. And I'm as useless a liberal as exists in the world. If you need a pointed think piece in SNL parlance, I'm your guy. Boy, I'm good at this.
but my, my fence fell down in my yard, and I couldn't let my dogs out unless it was on a leash, and I was traveling on tour, and I couldn't get home. Do you know who came to my house and fixed my fence? My redneck relatives. They dropped what they were doing, which, by the way, they get paid by the day. And they came to my house, and they wouldn't take a cent, and they said, it's because we're family. The solution to the, the country's political problems is in this room, and her room's just like it. Hey, Science Mike. My name is Caitlin. I'm from Seattle. Thank you for the work that you do uh, to create the space for the spiritually homeless. <laughs> My question relates to the phenomenon of being starstruck. Okay. <laughs> A little bit lighter. Sorry. Love it. No, we need it. I'm crying. <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet you several months ago, and although I had several things I wanted to share, I found myself speechless and removed from the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, a rarity for me. <laughs> what physiology is at play that seems to genuinely paralyze us in these moments and overriding our person? And how does one defy it? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Man, that's a great question. It's so real and subverts normal social taboos, which is what this is about. Um, so I'm a real weird guy because I'm a nerd. So I went through the formative years of my life in a state of absolute social rejection. So I never learned to be nervous looking for people's approval. I preemptively assume I don't have it. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, you don't like me. That's cool. I can just do my thing. And then about high school time came, and people were like, that guy's so cool, he doesn't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> well, I don't care what anybody thinks, because two years ago, you put my head in the toilet every day, right? <laughs> we're a social species. It is critical for our survival that we find a place in our tribe. Tribe, neurologically, for a human, is about 150 people. It's what we're ready to handle. We can handle about 1,500 faces, which means, unfortunately, I meet right now on tour four to 800 people a week, so my, my face cash gets flushed really fast. Um, but what we, we have an incredible amount of neurological real estate uh, devoted to monitoring what other people think about us. And... That means the people whose approval is most important in a tribe are the people in charge, the most socially powerful and dominant. They tend to have certain features uh, physically, which I have none of, <laughs> other than a, a quite lovely baritone voice, by the way. Uh, <laughs> humans defer to deeper voices, which is amazing. When I used to work in the corporate world, if I wanted to say something meaning, I would just kind of go, well, everybody, and everybody be quiet, just because a, a deep voice male is speaking. I wish that was like, a, like a, a beautiful motivation. It turns out pre-civilization, if you talked over a deep voice male, that correlates cleanly with body mass, and he might hit you with a stick. Um, so that's why natural selection does that. But so we have all these cues to defer to important people. And one thing that denotes someone who has social dominance is what? They talk and you listen. 
I'm a podcaster. So as much as like I'm trying to foster a genuine, deep emotional connection with people who listen to the show, their brains in a parasocial relationship get science mic talks and I listen. So sometimes in the line we're gonna do after this event, people stand there and they walk up and they don't talk. And I'm like, hi. And they're like, oh yeah, I can talk. Like, because they've been trained like that I can't hear them. So with celebrities, media causes an emulation, a supernormal stimulus that they are the most high-ranking humans that can exist in a tribe, right? We're always tall because we're either on a screen or on a stage, and we defer to tall people. I'm above the midline of everyone's vision, even Mike, and he's real tall, but I'm on stage. I have a booming voice. Not only do I have a booming voice, I have a booming voice to these speakers. And all this is sending cues to your brain that I am just like a really dominant gorilla. I almost spilled my wine. Uh, Internet, I made uh, gorilla motions. And so, what, what, sorry, sometimes I talk to the internet too, but they will be listening. So, so when we finally meet, and we turn a parasocial relationship into a social relationship, all the baggage of media comes along. And as much as I intentionally try to subvert media habits to create a more authentic connection, part of your brain resists. Now, to your credit, the people that come to these events are unfailingly cool and real and don't treat me like a celebrity, and we have very natural conversations in in line, and you have no idea how much I appreciate that. I have friends who have platforms, and I've watched the dynamic people that come to their events, and it's, it's, it's alienating. And you aren't alienating to me, but I can't help but notice, I've started counting, uh, between 18 and 22% of the people in line, when we have the selfie moment or the picture moment, when I put my hand around them, they're trembling. And I'm just like, oh, don't tremble. <laughs> so, but then I understand it's just it's a parasocial relationship. It's everything evolution has programmed you to do. And so even though on a cognitively level, you all get, he's, not, he's just a guy. In fact, he's, he's kind of a nerd. He's pretty thick around the middle. He doesn't look like a socially dominant person. The fact that I'm standing, you're all sitting, all that forms to get to that moment, so you get starstruck when we meet. It's evolution. Um, which is why, even though it's somewhat exhausting, I will stay two, three, sometimes four hours after these events to meet everybody is to get rid of that. Because this is not an ego mission for me. I don't care about being famous. I care about people who are suffering and feel alone not feeling that way anymore. And I think in many ways, American media dynamics work against that instead of for it. And that's when I say, like, I'm really happy you're all here. I'm really happy you're all here. I'm more excited to see you than you are to see me. And um, we'll figure out how to fight back against evolution together. Hi, Mike. I'm Arthur. We share a shockingly similar deconversion experience. Uh, I was also a deacon. 
technically still am, I think. <laughs> didn't, didn't get officially kicked out. Um, so I, however, have not uh, had the follow-up mystical experience that mm -hmm. you have. Um, I'm very content where I'm at. Uh, I do feel the loss of community. Um, and that, that probably occurred in the last couple years. Um, and that happened for my whole family. We went through a lot of trauma, including uh, some authority abuse by the church. And it was, it was really a rough time. And so I guess where, where I'm at, um, I'm, at a, I'm at a different place than my wife. She still has her faith. Mm -hmm. uh, my children still do that are 10 and 12. Um, but I guess the question I have for you in that place that I'm at, in, in my contentment as, as an atheist, or, or I often prefer agnostic because I'm not really close to the idea, yeah. um, I just have certainly rejected what I was grown up being taught, uh, is that where would you suggest that I look to explore as somehow... Um, what I kind of describe as my, my not ruling out the possibility of a God in that uh, I feel like I'm doing some sort of due diligence and being open to the idea. Uh, what would you tell someone like me to look for, to experience? Look for and just an overall experience of God or to have a mystical experience? Either. Either. Okay, because two different things. If you want to have a mystical experience, engage in a rigorous intense meditative practice and regularly engage in emotionally dynamic corporate worship. Scientifically speaking, those are two things that increase the likelihood for a given person to have a mystical experience. Bad news, we don't all have equal propensity to have mystical experiences. It turns out I have a really high propensity, <laughs> probably genetically, to have mystical experiences. The aforementioned crying at the Atlanta airport being somewhat of a signal that I have divine eyes. Um, <laughs> so I like to explain it. I explain it this way in my book, uh, number one best-selling book in the science and religion category on Amazon.com. Um, uh, you can imagine two people. And genetically, one is a very fast runner and one is not. But if the genetically not fast runner goes through a rigorous training program and the other doesn't, and they both try to run a marathon, the slow runner who practiced will probably beat handily the naturally fast runner. Very few people without training can go run 26.2 miles. It does happen. I hate those people because <laughs> I ran a marathon and it, it almost killed me. Uh, I lost consciousness in mile 22. Uh, fat marathoners, it's just a weird thing. Uh, but the work pays off regardless of your temperament. So the worst case is if you engage in a regular meditation practice is you just get better brain health and emotional stability but not a mystical experience. Um, now, in terms of what to look for in an openness, there's just so many different schools of thought about what God is. And if, if assigning some value to the label God in your particular model of reality is significant, 
just find one that doesn't make you wretch. I'll be honest, I love my Calvinist friends, and they're so kind to keep listening, even though I pick on them all the time. But the Calvinist God, sometimes I go, like it just grosses me out. Um, I so love the world that I'm going to kill my son to save the world from me. It's just a weird vibe to me. Um, my son, who is me? Um, it's just a weird, like I can't get behind that. But a God who is love, who was incarnate in the Christ, who's, who as the Christ was incarnate in Jesus, who shows a reaction to human bloodthirst by offering his life to show the futility of that bloodlust? That actually, I'll sing a song about that. I'll sing great is thy faithfulness to that God. So it just comes down to whether the, the word God matters to you or not. If you're content, congratulations. You're ahead of almost everybody in the room. Um, so celebrate. I care about like, are you a part of making healing and peace in the world or not? That's the gospel. Uh, you know, when I told Rob Bell at an event that some of these guys were at, that I didn't believe in God anymore, uh, but I cared a lot about the poor, you know what Rob said to me? He said, you're already living a Jesus life, so don't worry about it so much. So if you're in a state where you'll lay down your rights and your privilege and your material resources and your time for the healing of others, congratulations, you're a Jesus person. I get excited about questions. I get excited about learning things I thought were true or wrong. We get the knowledge of God we have to get in order to move and act in the world. And sometimes that knowledge of God is there is no God at all. Some of the greatest progress I've ever made in my life, A, in understanding of science, and B, learning how to make good ethical decisions, was during the period of time that I didn't believe in God at all. Like, what use is a God who is incapable of surviving without our belief? Yeah, I mean, that's, like, that's like an Instagram God. Like, if I don't get 1,100 likes, the puppy gets it, right? Like, that's not an exciting God. But a God who is... Uh, who was the animating force of all reality, who was the initiator of creation, and who was creation itself, that God's already there whenever you're ready and is ready if you never are. In your last liturgist podcast on suffering, a speaker that was brought on, I'm not sure who it was actually, if we could all see that we are the other we could transcend our unique experiences and understand that we are one. Mm -hmm. This is bigger than one religion and one race. Mm -hmm. So you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious about collective empathy mm -hmm. and how to cultivate that in a society of such division and polarization that we live in. And if you have any like daily practices that you participate in to contemplate yourself as the other, or oh. how do we bridge this divide? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, so you want the weirdest answer in the history of Ask Science Mike. No problem. I mean, I'm mostly honest with y'all, but sometimes some of the top shelf stuff I just serve at private parties. Uh, <laughs> uh, step one. This is tough. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is essential. Now, I hate talking about forgiveness because some people who are Christians, by the way, I, I've got to this thing I realized, um, evangelicals are not my adversaries, even the really conservative ones that hate me. They are uh, in a parable that Jesus talked about, the prodigal son. They're just the older son. So I'm a prodigal. Like I went out and ate with the pigs and spent the inheritance and God still loved me at the end and celebrated my return, and they're like, what? <laughs> Don't know if you know this, New York publishers. I've been at church every week. I've been tithing. I've been giving generously to, to genuine need in human society while he was Googling. Like, uh... <laughs> So I've recently had this realization, the father loved the older son. The father was surprised that the older son was even upset. He's like, what do you mean? We work together all the time. I'm just happy the little one came back. But my older brothers in faith sometimes talk about forgiveness in a way that is abusive because they tell people who have been oppressed and abused that they must forgive and accept and affirm the one who wounded with them. Obvious is often <laughs> this means that um, we have to share space that's not healthy to share. Right? So even if the, if the abuser hasn't repented, you still have to forgive them and accept them. So, oh, you battered wife? That's your duty. Oh, you oppressed minority? We're all welcome at the table. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about forgiveness. I have to give that disclaimer. What I'm talking about when I talk about forgiveness is claiming your space in your own mind again. So really strange thing, scientifically speaking. When you haven't forgiven someone or a group of someone's, it impairs your cognitive function. If, they, if we remind you of that person and ask you to take a test, your scores drop. If you remind you of that person and then ask you to perform a physical task, you give up sooner. If we ask you to think of that person and then get you to jump, you can't jump as high. It's an incredibly expensive thing in your own mind. So we have to forgive for our own mental well-being. How do you do that? First, you grieve. If, if you still have trauma stored in your brain and your emotions, you can't forgive someone. Next, if they're still actively abusing you, you'll never be able to exercise that grief. You've got to get yourself the boundaries and the distance to prevent ongoing abuse. 
And here's where it really gets hard. You've got to be able to imagine their motivation for why they did what they did. That's tough. It took 20 years for me to get to that point with a young man who went in third grade with me and made me eat dog feces out of a Ziploc bag. I was in my 30s when I could understand his motivations. And then, after you understand the motivations, it does not mean you accept the motivation. It means you understand it. And then you wish no ill will toward them. And you know forgiveness is complete according to psychologists, not theologians, when you can wish well to that person. Confession, there are people in my life I haven't gotten through all those stages with. And I work at it every day. There are certain people who I do a kindness meditation for every day. So, we forgive those that have hurt us. Now that otherness, sometimes people haven't hurt us. They're just alien. They're just foreign. We just don't understand them. They live in a foreign country. They live in a flyover state. Um, they live wherever in a, a circumstance we don't understand. They do things that we, we can't comprehend. Top shelf. All right, here we go. I'm a little nervous. Uh, I recognize I'm an illusion. In quantum, think, qu quantum theory, it's really hard to nail down the boundary between my body and the atmosphere or the floor or what makes my body at all. It's uh, quantum decoherence, constantly collapsing into a definitive state that uh, we can't precisely know the location and velocity of any particle in my entire being. My entire being. I'm just a bit of fuzzy math. And then I have this consciousness, which is my brain telling a story, a process that takes about 80 milliseconds. So my consciousness is living in the past of actual reality. <laughs> my senses are relaying things that come to me at a finite speed. So all these uh, hot body radiation happening in these bulbs that photons get emitted. Uh, probably hydroelectric. Um, so congratulations, these are not directly powered by the sun, even through burning fossil fuels. Got a little lost. <laughs> 186,000 miles per second to my eyes. Not a big deal in this room, but comes at a different rate than the compression waves in the atmosphere that allow me to hear things. And we think that babies hear echoes because they haven't learned yet to compensate for the difference in time signals coming to their ears. Um, we think that babies don't see light the same way we do because they haven't learned to lie to themselves <laughs> in order to operate in the world. They're just taking, they're taking the raw file right off the SD card without running it into a JPEG first. Sorry, real nerdy joke. I love that Portland gets it though. So, so why do I believe what I believe? Where do my beliefs come from? Social identity, mainly. Uh, I believe what people around me believe, and then I dress it up in my rational faculties which evolution gave us so we can convince other people 
that our intuition was correct. Rational thought wasn't born as a way to uncover facts about the world. It was uncovered as a way to hide the fact that we're just making shit up all the time. <laughs> and that's what everyone is doing. Now, some of us feel especially enlightened because we don't believe what our tribe believes. Congratulations, you're a nonconformist. You just believe the opposite of your tribe. That's not any more clever. <laughs> You're just like, oh, you believe X? I believe X over one. <laughs> when I realized everyone is just tell every brain is running software it didn't write, just like me, it's a lot harder to otherize people. When I realized we are made of the same stuff. And if we get in a room like this, we share like 20 septillion atoms with every breath, we literally start sharing the same atoms. Congratulations, you're gonna take a little science mic with you tonight. <laughs> right? Oh, that's creepy. I didn't mean it creepy. I mean carbon dioxide primarily, some nitrogen. Um, there is no other. We're just a, like a little film of algae on a rock together. <laughs> and anything that happens that makes them unhealthy makes me unhealthy. Anything that hurts them hurts me. And uh, that is not something I struggle with a whole lot, at least not until November the 8th. But I'm going to get my equilibrium back, and I'm going to stop otherizing people. Uh, we are in this together, like it or not. We all breathe the same atmosphere. 400 parts per million CO2 will affect us all the same way. Um, I read some fascinating data that in countries with high income inequality, rich people get sick more often. We are all connected. And our consciousness is not even an individual consciousness. The story you're telling yourself is one line of notes on a page of a symphony. And if you doubt that, I would encourage you to go lock yourself in a room without internet connectivity or books for two months and then come out afterward and tell me how you feel. I don't care how introverted you are. If you have no contact with other humans for two months, your software is going to fail because you don't have an individual consciousness. The Enlightenment lied about that one. <laughs> My question is about vulnerability and trauma. Um, I have been reading a book called It Didn't Start With You. I don't remember the author, but um, about how trauma is encoded within our DNA, microDNA. Um, mm -hmm. for three up to three generations at a time so okay. we can literally experience physical sensations from up to three generations back mm -hmm. that we haven't actually experienced ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and then also c thinking about Brene Brown and her research on vulnerability and how that's sort of the space at which um, the foundation from which the wholehearted evolve into their wholehearted living. Um, and I'm just wondering if maybe 
well, first, what you can tell us about how the brain works between vulnerability and trauma, and if perhaps there's a point at which those two things intersect that might be hopeful in our current climate. Okay. First of all, I don't know the term microDNA. That's new to me. I haven't read that book. I've heard about epigenomics and the way that the environment your parents experience primarily around the time of your conception can influence in ways we do not entirely understand genetic expression in offspring. Now, I've primarily heard this research done in the context of calorie availability. Uh, for example, if your parents have a lot of calories available, uh, you get diabetes easier. Really weird stuff. Scientists don't know how it works. There's some theories. There's nothing uh, that I've read that's gotten a lot of peer review and, and explained this phenomenon. Um, but that does lay a possibility that even separated from culturalization, some things carry on molecularly. And I'm trying to avoid overreaching because enough scientists listen to the show. If I screw up or overgeneralize, they email me. So, <laughs> and boy, do I love scientific approval. Um, so there is some I get nervous when I meet scientists, by the way. I didn't remember for your question, but like when I meet scientists, I'm always like, oh my God. <laughs> like you haven't heard it yet, but we interviewed Andrew Newberg for the Literature Podcast. He's like my favorite neuroscientist. And I could not get it together. <laughs> I was like, well, um, Dr. Newberg, what's it like being so awesome? <laughs> so, uh, oh, what a life I live. I am a very vulnerable person. And... Uh, I think it's because I was bullied. My mom says, I didn't remember this, my mom says I would come home and cry and then I would pray for my bullies. I was a weird kid. <laughs> um, when I was 11, I started praying fervently for a couple of years that uh, Satan would come to know Christ. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, if he could just accept Jesus into his heart, not only would he go to heaven, but sin on the earth would stop. I just like, how has no one thought of this? I just, I just solved the problem of evil. So... Um, how do you bless those that curse you? How do you, how do you, how do you care? If you suffer enough, you don't want to see that in anyone else. So the thing I could see among the kids that beat me up was they were really afraid what the other ones thought about them. Like if they made a joke and it didn't land and like for a second they started to get picked on, that's when they attacked me the most. It was like, oh, whoa, I'm losing standing. Look how stupid he is. Oh, he wears Hawaiian shirts and he's eight. Um, I did. 
I earned that, man. What was I doing? I had this red Hawaiian shirt with parrots on it. And I just loved it. And I wore it with these, like, really blue shorts with french fries all over them. Why? Why did I think, like, red parrot blue french fries was a good combo? Um... So those were, I got beat up a lot on parrot french fry days. Uh, but you recognize that suffering in other people and you just don't want it to happen. And when you realize as you get older that when you're on, like most people are afraid to admit their pain because they want to look weak. So it becomes a self-reinforcing thing where you admit something hurt and like 10 other people in the room go, I can remember, I, man, I used to, be in management in a corporation. I hate managing people. But people love to come to my office and talk to me, even if they didn't work for me, because they would tell me something, and I'd go, man, I bet that really hurts. And they'd go, that's all people want. Like, even if you think the best thing for America is for all the buttercups to suck it up right now, saying suck it up buttercup doesn't pull off your objective. Saying, I bet that's terrifying, would be actually more in line with your stated objectives. Uh, our suffering doesn't improve when we suck it up. Neurologically speaking, our suffering improves when we grieve. Um, so I can't actually cite research other than the brilliant Brene Brown. Um, on the linkage between suffering and empathy and vulnerability. Viktor Frankl talked a lot about this, by the way, and he was a badass. Um, but when you, when you suffer and you see what that suffering has given you, if I wouldn't have been a, a bullied nerd, if I wouldn't have spent a couple of years in absolute fear that I was going to lose my friends and family because I didn't believe in God anymore, I couldn't be Science Mike. That pain is the engine of this work. Um, and I think sometimes when we don't suffer enough, what, you haven't experienced that self-reinforcing phenomenon. If every time you're a little bit vulnerable, somebody goes, ha, 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 or, or honest to God, it still happens as hell. Ha, 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 are you gay? Wait, how did that become a, a cultural thing? Like, are you, are you approaching mental health? You must enjoy same-sex behavior. In that, in that way, actually, like, in the South, calling someone gay is kind of a compliment. Um, oh, you'll express vulnerability and live in community? It's a, just a very odd in, insult if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it's, that's the dumbest insult now that I think about it I've ever heard. Um, but just think about that from that person's experience. What are they most afraid of? People thinking I don't like other dudes. So I, I had a moment where I expressed vulnerability and I had the worst reinforcement. So vulnerability is not safe. So we teach people to, especially white straight men, to compartmentalize, to not be vulnerable. And then we're like, so why is it that white, straight men use the most opioids and kill themselves the most? Because we're like, hey, the most important thing for you to be a man 
is to be incredibly emotionally unhealthy. <laughs> Manliness equals loneliness, isolation, and repression. Go. Uh, which is why I think it's all the more important that those of us who've been hurt a lot, like we don't let ourselves get shamed out of expressing that. My dad's a real manly man. I've noticed since his divorce and all the suffering he's been through, he's become so much more empathetic. And I've noticed since his brain injury and his sudden inability to be an island, he literally needs other people to get through the day, uh, that there's a tenderness. Now, Dad's always been, in some way, affectionate, but there's a tenderness that was born out of that. I don't know why we suffer, but I do know that if we respond to suffering well, somehow we grow. All the things in my life I've done that are meaningful and helpful and important were born out of a suffering that produced vulnerability that provoked vulnerability in others. I mean, why does this room work? Why? You want a secret? There are Trump supporters in this room right now. Why are those Trump supporters cool? Why can they share the space? Because they're vulnerable Trump supporters. Why is it we can all get them here in different places, atheists, agnostics, progressive Christians, my beloved Calvinists, all of us in the room together because the core value of this room is vulnerability. And why are you such a vulnerable people? Because you've all suffered. The common thread among every person that comes to this event is someone has told you you aren't good enough and you don't belong. And so you're done saying that to other people. And that's what creates this space. Uh, I was in... Los Angeles, one of the LA stops, and so it's Science Mike. Thanks for creating a space like this. I was like, what are you talking about? You all create this space. I just show up and give you an excuse to be in the same room, and it's because suffering has produced vulnerability and empathy. And I think it's cool as hell. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I'm a senior in, a, in high school, and I just have... Really? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Right, thanks. Um, so I just have a really quick, I think it's like a light, lighter-ish question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so as a senior, a lot of seniors experience this obviously clinically supported this syndrome called senioritis. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I was just wondering, like, why seniors have that and what we could do to kind of like suppress it. Man. We got a real problem here, folks. The nightmare of Ask Science Mike just came true. An incredibly thoughtful question that even letting time for applause and riffing to give myself more time to think, <laughs> I can't think of a single study to cite to give a scientific answer to. What is the neurocognitive motivation of senioritis or near end state apathy? I'm Googling in my own mind for a second. 
Don't mind me. So, like, I'm going to vamp. Can we vamp? Similar thing happens in the corporate world. Um, when a product gets 85% done, progress, like, phew, finishing is the hardest thing in the world. People think starting is hard. What do you, you start stuff all the time. Finishing stuff is really difficult. Uh, I can do this in science. Language matters. Calling senioritis a thing creates senioritis. Uh, so when people say they stub their toe and they say, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like that label, calling yourself an idiot, turns out to be incredibly detrimental to your emotional well-being. It turns out to um, reduce your performance in standardized testing. It's the language we describe ourselves with matters. So when we tell people there's this phenomenon, when you become a senior, you get senioritis, we become a senior all we do. It's time for senioritis. Senior skip day, here we come. By the way, I never skipped in high school. And on senior skip day, I was like, I should really skip. So on second period in electronics, I said, Mr. Kramer. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Kramer. I just like mentioned you on the internet. Um, can I uh, skip class today? Like just go to breakfast. I've never skipped before. And he said, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you an approved absence. It, was, it wasn't until I got back to school that I realized I had just failed skipping in the most fundamental way. Uh, so, so naming the thing makes it the thing. But I also think um, finishing is hard. Why is finishing hard? You get to a point in a project where you experience diminishing returns. A lot of your transcript is done. A lot of your, you may already have been accepted into college. Like why would you, what, what, the external motivating factors decrease. You as a senior enjoy a state of social prestige and dominance. Like freshmen part like the sea as you walk through the halls. Because uh, you're a foot and a half taller than they are and <laughs> You look visibly like an adult. Like, so if you, I wouldn't think you were a senior. I would think you're like 24. <laughs> so um, the fact that you get accepted more um, in adult social settings makes high school feel more alien. And I think it's just a lot of those factors kind of uh, coalescing. Uh, so how can you avoid suffering the worst of senioritis? Intention and goal setting, and maybe nurturing a little bit of a nonconformist streak. Most people don't read. That's, just, that's a statistical fact. So I didn't go to college, not a course of action I'm recommending for you. But I made sure that instead, as I was starting businesses, I read six books a month every month because I realized I would actually learn more doing that than my friends who went to college did. And the reason I'm good at Ask Science Mike is not because I'm more intelligent than anyone else. I just read all the time. So I take insights from three different books and stitch them together in real time. And people are like, wow, where did he get that? Books. <laughs> and, uh, and if you realize that keeping your foot on the gas through your senior year 
will give you an unfair competitive and economic advantage going into college, I don't know, sometimes I like making more than the next guy. I certainly did in my corporate years. And uh, maybe not as a podcaster. But uh, so focusing on that, I'm intentionally going to maintain my effort level because I want the dividends. And then visualizing. So I wrote a book. A lot of people start books. Not many people finish books. Because it turns out you get like halfway into a book and you are lost. <laughs> what is the book even about now? I don't know. These... <laughs> How, why did I write a chapter on basket weaving that has nothing to do with God? That's just what I thought about that Tuesday. So at that moment, uh, there's a real risk of giving up. By the way, I really wanted to give up several times in the process of writing that book. How did I get through it? I imagined the book release party. I imagined all my friends and all my family all getting here. I imagined signing books. So when people come up, they're like, I know this is lame, but will you sign my book? I'm like, what? Lame? I wrote a book, <laughs> finished it, it got published, you bought it, and you asked me to sign it. This is literally a fantasy fulfillment moment for me. But it was like visualizing that gave me the determination to get through the hardest days of writing. So visualizing marching on graduation day with second semester grades that are great and knowing that you persisted when everybody else gave up might give you just enough of a nonconformist energy to finish high school strong. Um, so my question is actually about the dyslexic brain. Um, I'm actually someone who is dyslexic and was illiterate till 13 mm -hmm. um, and have failed through college. Well, like not, yeah, like I went for six years with no degree um, and find myself now in a world that really is very frustrating, especially in a Christian setting because everyone's got a book club and not everyone is so great to make audiobooks. Um, and so I was wondering, evolutionary, like, Speaking, was there mm -hmm. any point or purpose to creating a, a brain that processed so differently? And hmm. how do you, or do you have any insights or thoughts of how to like move forward in a society that doesn't serve necessarily a brain that thinks so differently? Yeah, great question. <laughs> Evolution doesn't create anything. Uh, mutation creates stuff, and evolution evaluates it. So evolution is, the, is just real judgy. <laughs> so if an adaptation makes you less likely to produce offspring and survive long enough to help them survive, evolution says, we're going to cut that. If you have a mutation and it makes you more likely to produce offspring, then evolution goes, we're going to install that in more systems. Like we're, the factory line is going to put a lot of that out. If you have a mutation that doesn't affect a benign mutation, evolution goes, eh, I don't care. Um, if you go to our evolutionary context, pre-civilization, a dyslexic brain like is not really maladapted to hunter-gathering. 
at all. Um, and I say this, I have an unnamed learning disability that is remarkably similar to dyslexia, a word I have difficulty saying because of said neurological condition. Like, I think it's really, I'm being real for a second, it's kind of cruel to make a phonetically complicated, hard to spell word <laughs> to describe an abil a disability related to spelling and pronunciation. I, I'm 100% I'm serious. So if I'm driving and someone says, turn left, I'm like, what the hell is left? <laughs> I literally have to go, so I write with, I could write with that, couldn't I? Oh shit, I hit a car. Um, don't ride with me. I can't tie my shoes. Uh, I mean, I can, I just have to do it a lot because they fall apart. Uh, and wait till you see me sign a book. Holy cow. Because I start writing a letter and realize I'm turning the wrong way, so I turn around and my handwriting is just like random. Like, which way? Like, people are like, left, L. Which one's an L? They both look like L's to me. <laughs> so evolution didn't screen against that, and it still doesn't. It still doesn't. If you're a female with dyslexia, like, if, if we go to the, the genet forget culturalization, if we go to the genetically set traits for how men select women for reproductive suitability, facial symmetry, because that means good genes, good nutrition. Ratio between hips and waist. There's no selection pressure, right? Same thing, I'm a dyslexic male. Facial symmetry. Ratio between shoulders and hips. It's gotten worse as I've gotten older, but I used to have a decent ratio, right? So <laughs> when Jenny like, decided to marry me, I had uh, more of a V and less of a pair. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, and so evolution didn't select against it. So how, how do we compensate is what matters. Well, I didn't know I had a learning disability for almost all of my school career. So I just got a lot of C's and D's and F's all the time, every year. And what I was told is I was incredibly lazy and I needed to work harder. And I would work harder, but no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't fill out the worksheet. I knew what I wanted to say, but when it took me 10 times as long to fill in by hand, and then all I got was, you need better handwriting written on the worksheet in ninth grade, it's incredible disincentive. So the summer <laughs> after my junior year, my mom was like, we need to take him to a specialist and, and like have him tested because I don't believe what the teachers are saying. So she tests me and she's like, okay, good news. You're incredibly off the chart intelligent. Bad news, you have severe learning disabilities. And you've been compensating well. So, so some things about me, I don't have any short-term memory. So I got really good at committing things in long-term memory. Uh, I have real problems with spatial awareness. 
I can't process auditory information really at all. Um, but believe it or not, it turns out I have incredibly good long-term memory recall, you may have noticed. Uh, it turns out I'm really good at articulating things I've learned. Um, and it turns out I have like, like really genuinely unscorably high symbolic and abstract reasoning. So I, I learned to rely on that, but this specialist told me a couple of tricks. One, she said, when your teacher is talking, I want you to look at her face, or she's looking at the board, look at the back of her head, and I want you to imagine it's a newscast, and I want you to teletype what she's saying as closed captions while she's talking. And that trick and a couple of others took me from C's, D's, and F's to all A's my senior year. And I didn't even have to study. Like all, so the problem is every person's compensation strategies will be different. You probably have learned a lot on your own because you're here, because you have a job, because you know what I mean, because you function in society. But working with a learning specialist or a support group with your particular differing abilities will help you find strategies like that that let the parts of your brain, there's a high linkage, by the way, between high intelligence and learning disability. So if you can learn to let the parts of your brain that are quite exceptional take over the parts of the brain that are not typical, um, it, it, it's helpful. And you already mentioned you love audiobooks. Um, have you tried the, uh, Kindle has a, is it, it's, it's like a text-to-speech? Yeah. Um, so things like that, there's not an audiobook for, but they've allowed the licensing for digitized speech? They don't, I know they don't. Which, by the way, uh, all of us can send a note to Amazon and publishers and say, we get money is important, but damn it, this is a society that will honor people of all ability levels over capitalism. Well, we're not buying anything, right? That's our choice. You know what we can all do? Every single person in this room? Let's do, I'll do it. This week, let's call a congressperson or a senator and say there should be legislation that protects access to audiobook resources for people of different ability levels. Because if the companies aren't going to do it, we can create laws that make them do it. Because we're all in this together, yeah. right? If we won't do that for somebody with a different ability than our own, they won't do it for us. So uh, everybody in internet land, official science mic homework. <laughs> I don't care if it's state or federal, call someone and say you're frustrated that publishers don't universally allow access to text-to-speech audiobooks for people with learning disabilities. It's really specific, which means it will work. <laughs> uh, I'm a member of something called the Planetary Society. And we got NASA's funding changing, changed just by getting a bunch of nerds to call in the same three-day period. <laughs> Let's be honest, there's not that many members of the Planetary Society. <laughs> but we just coordinated our efforts and the, the, the congressional people were like, oh my gosh, it looks like three million people care about this. No, we just hacked the math. And this week, Ask Science Mike 93, I think this is, we're all gonna do the same thing, we're gonna hack the system 
for audiobooks for people with learning disabilities. Uh, and so that aside, I have a traumatic brain injury. I mentioned that at the beginning. I hit my head. Ever since then, this new thing has happened. Sometimes I can't think of a word for something. Now, I know that's normal. It had never happened to me before. And earlier in my recovery, things were a lot worse than they are now for me. And the only way I got through that was by joining a traumatic brain injury support group. So, are you, so if you're not a member of a support group for people with dyslexia, which I, I literally can't say it, uh, that's a good place to go. Share notes. They can also help you find people that are professionals that might be able to give you resources. Uh, I guess first I'd like to say, my God loves me. Boom. Yes. I don't know if anybody else knows about that, but um, if you listen to the Liturgy's podcast, that meditation has not only saved or helped my marriage, mm. but has deepened my wife's faith in a God mm. that is loving mm. and that doesn't judge based on whether you're gifted in the gifts of tongues or faith healing, but a God that is um, impartial, mm. that a God that doesn't care who you are. He loves his creation. So thank you for that. Thank mm. you for that meditation. Um, it's been phenomenal. It's, it's really helped a lot um, already. It's been two weeks, and uh, we take our Sabbath on Saturday. So oh, wow. Turn off our phones, our computers. We lock them in a drawer, and we read. Um, I read your book in two days. <laughs> I just I ate it. I devoured it. It was good. Thank you. Uh, my question is, um, I heard you speak on, the, um, on Greg Boyd's uh, Woodland Hills yeah. Church podcast. Uh, that, was, that was a really good conversation. I know him and you probably disagree a little bit on the spiritual warfare motif. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit um, about your take on the problem of evil and... (laughs) 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 Yep. Yep. And uh, demonic possession, essentially. Okay. This, your basic wiffle ball of a question. Okay. Real easy. T-ball. Uh, I can't even think of like what an easy pitch means in baseball. Uh, <laughs> wiffle ball is not a pitch. Uh, okay, my take on the problem of evil. Uh, we anthropomorphize God too much. I think most of our thorniest theological issues are trying to force a sequential temporal reference frame onto the divine. So don't do that. (laughs) So... So we experience life as what? Moment, 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 moment. Uh, and it always in one direction. And the laws of physics imply no directionality to time at all. So you, you know, if I take this glass and do like this and just wine goes all over, you know, Gallagher style, the first couple of rows, as a real dated reference. Uh, if you applied 
the same amount of energy to every droplet of wine in the exact opposite direction, they would all coalesce and go back into the glass, right? It's just physics. And then if you look at, at relativity, you understand there is no such, time, no such thing as simultaneous time between any two points in space that's fixed, that the passage, the rate of the passage of time is dependent on uh, the differential velocity between any two points as well as the amount of curvature of space-time caused by gravity. It doesn't matter most of the time until you get deep into a gravity well and then weird stuff happens. Newtonian physics can't describe the orbit of Mercury precisely for that. You need relativity because Mercury has a relativistic orbit. Uh, in order to make a GPS satellite, you have to understand that the tick-tock tick -tock of seconds on a GPS satellite don't pass at the same rate as the tick-tock tick -tock of seconds on the surface of the Earth, or else the blue dot on your iPhone will slowly drift until GPS doesn't mean anything, right? So GPS is one of the few engineering challenges, maybe the only engineering challenge in the human experience where both general and special relativity are required for it to work. So if you're like, well, I don't know if relativity is real, GPS is a pretty good reinforcement. Gravitational lensing, which Einstein predicted in the 1930s, has been relatively recently observed where a galaxy bends light enough that you can use galaxies as telescopes. Crazy! What else does relativity imply? That all coordinates of space-time always exist. All past and all future coordinates of space-time always exist exist. <laughs> You're still getting here. You're still leaving. You're still being born. Your grandpa's being born. The earth is exploding and it's all just there. Okay. <laughs> we take relativity and quantum dynamics, we put them in a blender. We create Big Bang cosmology. We go back to the beginning of all things. You get to a singularity. In a singularity, time and space cease to have any distinction. The four fundamental forces of physics become just one unified force. Matter and energy cease to have any distinction. <laughs> the distinction's already pretty fuzzy. E equals mc squared for a reason. The kind of consciousness we talk about is nonsense from those perspectives. So anything that we could call being itself or the ground of being or the source of all doesn't experience a sequential linear consciousness. By the way, go see the film Arrival. If you want to get a little clue of what a non-linear consciousness might be. I can't say anymore, I'll spoil it. I will say I got out of that movie and for like four hours couldn't get my illusion of self back. So <laughs> even as I started that night's Ask Science Mike, I felt like I was reading from a script I was reading in real time. Like I couldn't see ahead, but I was like, I'm just going through the motions. Uh, it's real weird. Um, and so I think suffering is uniquely linked to cause and effect in a temporal perspective. 
at some point suffering ceases to be suffering. Now, does that mean God architects suffering? I don't know. Maybe God just protons and neutrons. Um, so I don't know if suffering has like an ordained reason that makes me uncomfortable. I know that suffering has a response. And I know that some of the most beautiful things we see are when people respond to the suffering of others and address it. Or when people in response to their own suffering seek to alleviate the suffering of others. I think we call that the gospel. Um, so I don't, I don't have like the problem of evil solved other than to say um, it might be the philosophical equivalent of who would win in a fight between Superman and Batman. Superman and... <laughs> Only this crowd. <laughs> With conviction. <laughs> Batman. Um, spoiler alert. Superman and Batman don't exist. <laughs> they exist within an imaginary reference frame, kind of like human consciousness. Uh, <laughs> um, and so... I wonder if sometimes, like, where does suffering come from is our equivalent of who would win in a fight. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of the notes of our perception of time that is incredibly illusionary. What was the second part of your question? I got so fascinated with the first part. Demons. Okay, yeah. I don't know. I, I, uh, I get really into Rene Girard's mimetic Satan and mimetic evil. I got kind of into mimetic demons for a while. Like demons are basically uh, mimetic software running on civilization. Somebody went, ooh, so this is a heady crowd. <laughs> um, my mom thinks demons are like beings. And uh, I've been watching, I'm afraid to say this because some people in the industry listen to this podcast. I've been watching, I don't watch a lot of TV but I can't read on flights anymore since I had the motorcycle accident because I will like throw up in the little bag. <laughs> so, and I can only stare at the back of the seat for so long. It turns out I can watch, um, as long as it's not on my phone, if I use my iPad or my laptop, I can watch video stuff. So uh, I fly enough that I've watched everything in the Delta in-flight entertainment. <laughs> Every film. So I, I just start watching stuff I don't even like just to watch things. And I came across this TV show called Lucifer on USA. And at first I was like, this show is terrible. <laughs> but then like they kept wrestling with like existential ideas about demons and, and Satan. And I was like, I, let's be honest, I'm really into this stuff. <laughs> so it's like a police procedural where like Satan is on vacation. Like he left hell and he like helps a cop solve crimes. I've watched all of season one, and I just downloaded season two to watch on my flights. And uh, it's so, some parts of it are so unbearable. But then other parts, like, 
our brains, the story is better if the mimetic has personhood. So sometimes, like, my guilty pleasure is to imagine a world in which angels and demons aren't mimetic. And sometimes, empirically, it doesn't describe the universe any better. It describes the universe worse. In my lived experiences, sometimes the problem of evil seems more solvable if evil's not just mimetic. Now, that has really interesting, frankly, terrible theological implications. It's also my history. You know, I, one of the L.A. people stood up and said, I know you don't have an axiom for demons. He said, but for some of us that have grown up in marginalized groups, the only answer we have to some of these problems is to think about demons in a literal way. And it's, it's pretty privileged for you in, a, in an enlightenment context to dismiss demons with a wave of the hand when that, that describes my life really well. And uh, so my empiricist goes, bullshit. And then like the greater part of my being that is primarily concerned with empathy and the suffering of others says, ah, I'll watch another season of Lucifer. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And, yeah, that's all I got. I'm not, I'm not going to put a bow on that one. I think we're just going to leave that where it is and give a really unsatisfying do-do-do-do. Uh, okay. Let's. My name is Mindy, and I've actually listened to one of your podcasts ever. But um, a buddy sent it to me, and he said, you're going to cry. you got to listen to it. <laughs> and I did, and he kept texting me. I was like, God damn it. Okay, I'll listen to it. Was it The Liturgist or Ask Science Mike? Um, the Liturgist. The Liturgist. Okay, yeah. And it was the one about... Our church. slogan is, you got to cry sometime. Yeah, you cry. Yeah. <laughs> I cried. But um, it was the one about church and the magic show. If I can change my life, listen to it if you haven't. My parents are listening to it. Pete it's Rollins, he's a good guy. Miracle. I'm going to start stop cursing. Um, my question is actually around this election and okay. women. And one of my highlight mm. moments was Beth Moore questioning the church leadership in this country. And then my worst moment was all of them doing this and voting for Trump. Um, I want to ask about consent and kind of where that fits in your evolutionary thinking of the dialogue around consent mm -hmm. and the idea that like boys will be boys and, and kind of sociologically where that has landed us today. Mm -hmm. And I'm shaking because it, this is a, it's so personal yes. and it's so personal for the women in our country right now. Yes. The women in our churches who have just been fucked over. Yeah. Um, I am so proud to be Episcopalian. I'm so proud to have female priests in my life. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who can't handle that. So I'd love to just hear your perspective on it, evolutionary, but then also the future of the church and women's voices. And pray God, give me hope. Yes. Thank you. Uh, evolution is no help in this one. Evolution is no help at all. Evolutionary speaking, honoring consent, not all that helpful. Uh, we look at the animal kingdom. Very typically, the way males prove suitability um, in reptiles and mammals is to be the biggest, most aggressive male 
who frightens, injures, or kills all the smaller males and then proves his worthiness to mate. In species where males have higher mass than females, non-consensual reproduction is common. Many bird species, females are larger than males. So in that case, the bird first wins through either display or trial a battle and then still has to serenade the female because if it comes down to it, she'll whip his ass, right? <laughs> so, um, sorry, I got a little southern for a second. Uh, but evolution rewards behavior civilization does not, which means... Behavior X is natural is never an ethical defense. If you want to go natural, rape is a perfectly natural animal behavior. And this is an instance where it's actually good we don't consider ourselves animals. Because we have the ability to model empathy. We have the, the, uh, an uncanny ability. Now dogs have it too to imagine what another's perspective is like. And this has created ethics. Now, we're not the only animals that have culturally considered non-genetic ethics. Chimps have it. Bonobos have it. Apes have it. A lot of large-brained social mammals have learned ethical behaviors we have a higher responsibility than other animals because of our greater ability to model reality in our minds. We've made incredible moral progress as a species. It's actually unprecedented, evolutionarily speaking. Bonobos are lovely animals, behaviorally compared to chimps, but it's just because they developed in a resource, uh, an environment where there's just a lot more food and water. There's no reason for bonobos to resort to blows and violence to eliminate conflict. There's plenty of food for everybody, which is why they resolve their differences with sexual behaviors. Um, evolution rewarded chimps when they were more brutal because food's more scarce. There's a lesson in there, by the way. Those are our two closest relatives, genetically speaking. So, arguably, the most dangerous mammal on this planet is Homo sapien. And our nearest relatives have radically different behaviors, primarily described by access to food and water. Maybe there's something instructive there in geopolitics and political machinations. How do you domesticate humans? You keep them well-fed. So... When it comes to consent, the way I make ethical decisions, protecting the consent of others protects my own consent. So, uh, I'm a beta male. If it came to a serious fight, I would lose to almost everyone in the room. 
right? I mean, I have these, look at my, just look at my arms. There's, it's bone and skin, right? I have no upper body strength. Um, so it behooves me to cultivate a civilization in which just because you have bigger biceps, you don't get your way. We, we make ethical decisions by people's consent is honored to the point where it violates another's consent. And what should our consent be permitted to do? It shouldn't produce suffering for others. Um, and that is actually remarkably self-serving moral philosophy. Because if I work hard to protect women's right over their body autonomy and consent, I'm also protecting mine. If I, if I say what we should all do is make a contract together that just because someone's bigger than me, they don't get to take my lunch, that ends up benefiting me. Um, it ends up benefiting the biggest guy in the room because that means three people who are stronger than he is can't turn around and take his lunch. The problem is the senioritis. We describe senioritis as a thing and it becomes a thing. We describe male sexuality as an uncontrollable force and what does it become? An uncontrollable force. An amazing thing. When we brain scan men and women, there's no difference in their response to visual imagery and arousal. There's no difference. It's completely made up. Men, you have every bit as much control over your sex drive as any woman. The language we use matters. So the first thing, I, I can prove it. If what they say about male willpower is true, I would be in, in jail right now. I would have been arrested. Why? I would walk by a pizza buffet and just started grabbing pizza. <laughs> I really, I'm 38 years old. I don't remember uncontrolled sexual desire. That's way in the rearview mirror. But when I see pizza, something happens to me. You know what I mean? Like last night, I'd already had dinner. I was at a youth camp. And then at 9.30, they set out pizzas. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> right? I just, I, so we start by telling men, you have agency. We told women they have agency. They believe it. Do you know what's funny? You go back to the Victorian era. era do you know what the normative understanding of sexuality was? Men are prudes who have sex to reproduce. And women are uncontrollable sexual fiends, and we have to keep them under control, or they'll just mate constantly. <laughs> That's history. I didn't make that up. And then we just, like, reverse those roles. Both are bad. Maybe it's worse to convince the larger-bodied primates they don't have control over themselves. So we start by telling a better story about sexuality. Second... I could be wrong, but my intention is to never go to a church again where all the pastors are men. 
I'm voting with my butt in a pew. My pastor's name is Betsy. She is a light in our life. Uh, my favorite thing in the world, I love being here with you all, but if I could be drinking a glass of wine at my pastor's house right now, let's party. And what I've noticed is like women pastors aren't there to dominate everybody. They're not there to be the church's CEO. They tend to actually just want to nurture and heal people. It turns out a maternal energy is a beautiful thing. Maybe one reason I'm so into it is when I take psychological assessments of masculinity and femininity, I tend to be more feminine than masculine. And why do I say that on stage? It's so guys can quit being scared of being identified as feminine. Just because I'm feminine doesn't mean I'm attracted to men. And if I was attracted to men, okay, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, let's get rid of all these taboos that are around our identity and our sexuality. They're not helpful. This repression creates violence. So, I voted for a female president with pride. I have a female pastor with pride. In my life, I am intentionally going to subvert patriarchy by supporting women in every possible position of leadership. Now, some people say, whoa, 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 whoa. We have got to fill leadership positions based on merit. So are you telling me that only straight white men have merit? You're telling me in a country that's mostly female, it's logical that corporate boards and politicians are mostly male? That means your worldview is inherently sexist. If you think it's normative that through merit, primarily white people are in leadership positions, that means your worldview is inherently racist. If merit is truly the driver of our decisions in placing people in occupations and leadership, then our occupations and leadership should be representative of the population from which it's drawn. Otherwise, I'm sorry, you are failing to acknowledge your implicit bias. It's just statistics. The last thing I'm going to do is cheer on people like Beth Moore, who in the, let's be honest, what's it do to my podcast numbers every time I say I'm for feminism? I pick up 5,000 listeners because of my audience. But when Beth Moore or Jen Hatmaker stand for social justice issues, they're actually putting their ass on the line in a way I'm not. I mean, if I drink a glass of red wine and say an F-bomb during the podcast, people cheer. I have a different audience, people on the other side of this stuff. But when my older brothers and sisters, faithful servants within those political, religious, and spiritual traditions stand up for justice, I am going to affirm them more loudly than anyone else. I am never going to say, what took you so long? I'm going to say welcome, and we are so glad you're here because we are in this together. It does me no good if only women in progressive urban areas experience equality. It does me no good if only gay men and lesbians and people of color in progressive areas experience equality. None of us are free until all of us are free, including 
in conservative rural America. Thanks for taking my question. I was like bouncing up and down in my chair. I have like 25 questions, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll limit it. Um, so first of all, thank you. I uh, suffered church abuse at three consecutive, well not consecutive, three churches out of four. And, um, mm. and then, and also um, was raped in the, on a missions trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Praise God. God brought me through it. And uh, I live in rural Tanzania. And part of what my husband and I do is teach pastors and lay leaders how to do trauma healing counseling for people in their congregations. Um, And I so appreciate your context, your contextualization of suffering as part of a spiritual experience. And Mm. that has certainly been true for us. Um, My husband is Kenyan. And um, what you described as uh, the, the white heterosexual male experience also really describes him well mm. as a dominant, as the dominant racial representative in a male-dominated society. Mm-hmm. He has the exact same experience. Um, so the question I wanted to ask you, um, some of the work we also do is with maternal health. And uh, my husband works with people who have albinism. Mm. And um, one of the things that we consistently encounter is that, particularly in rural Africa, the everything is spiritual mentality still prevails. Mm-hmm. And like my brother here was talking about the demonic and, and like you were saying, the, the like animation of evil in the form of demons and th- such so prevalent. Um, But some of the things that we encounter, so we're really education oriented. We want to teach people (laughs) scientific truth, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Um, Some of the things we run into are like um, traditional birth attendants in a a tribe that we work with who believe a pregnancy can go for 22 months or um, something like that. And it's there are reasons, there are evolutionary reasons why they've developed this belief for kind of the protection of the health of the mother, uh, from what I understand. But uh, also with albinism, obviously uh, they don't understand the genetics. So of course it seems like a spiritual curse or Mm -hmm. like this person is not really human. Um, So in some areas it seems very clear cut that we should counter these traditional beliefs with scientific truth, like in the case of albinism, when it's lowering a person's value and victimizing them. But in other cases, like with a pregnancy situation, we decided not to argue about it, and we just say, well, a typical pregnancy is 40 weeks, (laughs) and move on. Um, So as a person who is science-oriented and also mystical, how important is it to uh, land one way or the other, or what should, what would you see as uh, important factors to consider when you're trying to decide how to counter someone's traditional beliefs? Man, uh, sometimes I like to begin by stating my ignorance and the degree to which I feel utterly unqualified 
to weigh in on that at all. I've been doing all this studying lately about uh, the colonial nature of Western thought and the way we think that the best thing to do is to civilize the whole world. And I want to start by thanking you for not assuming the best thing to do is westernize Kenya. Yeah, I think in some ways the, a lot of the troubles on that continent are literally rooted in colonialism with people sitting around a table and deciding like which country, literally on a map, this is yours, this is mine. Forget the fact that people have been living here since before Europe was a thing. I am pragmatic in where I push scientific insight. So when I have friends who think the world was created in six literal days, but they spend most of their time volunteering at homeless shelters, your six days sound pretty awesome to me. Um, when people say, um, anyone who is attracted to someone of the same sex is an abomination, now science would like to have a word with your religious beliefs. Why? Because your religious beliefs produce suffering and harm in others and violate their right of consent and autonomy to live their lives. Uh, so that's generally the rubric I would use, but um, I have a deeply Americanized, westernized work. It actually scares me a little bit that Ask Science Mike and Literature's podcast are often downloaded in South America, Africa, uh, all over Asia, places where post-Enlightenment Western philosophy isn't normative because I'm not trying to export my assumptions. And I, I don't have any authority to speak. <laughs> to, uh, so I, I think the, the pragmatic approach you're taking, so this 22-month belief in this cultural context results in protection for women, let's just let that be. This belief about albinism produces real intense human suffering. Maybe now's the time to introduce genetics and DNA and those ideas. Um, but I would also think on those problems, is there an argument that is culturally normative? Are there, you know, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a Christian culture, for example, and they've accepted the authority of Scripture, maybe in a way that a lot of us in the room don't. And you can find a biblical example of why these birth conditions aren't results of a curse. Let, lead with the Bible. Lead with a culturally normative example. The way people change their minds about things is primarily story. So give them narratives that, that subvert those assumptions. Um, can, we, can we highlight people who have suffered from albinism in a cultural context and still tr contributed tremendously to social good, whose parents were indisputably morally upstanding within the culture 
and use narrative to subvert the assumptions, and then science as support. But I, I agree, and this is probably where a place where I depart a lot from my more skeptical friends. Um, a lot of skeptics really want to scienceize the whole world. And um, I don't know, I, I've done enough reading from some pretty compelling researchers and academics that that tends to be a very violent and destructive process. Our belief that enlightenment thinking and civilization are the best, probably the engine of climate change. Right? Science is like, hey, guess what? We know how to get a lot of energy. You just burn plankton that fossilized. Oh, you know what else you can do? You split atoms. And then all the only side effect is like radioactive waste that will last for tens of thousands of years. No big deal. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, oh, we can feed a lot of people with industrial-scale agriculture. All you've got to do is cut down all your forests and raise cows who will just spew methane in the atmosphere. It's awesome. Uh, I think maybe before we start exporting science, we should learn to use it more responsibly. Maybe then, when we've learned to create scientific insights that help us live in a symbiotic state with our ecosystem, now we can talk about, check this out, this is awesome. But right now, we're just like, you know what? What if we just blow everything up? It's going to be cool. It's not so bad on Venus. You can melt lead on the surface of the planet. It's awesome. Who don't want to melt lead? Our bodies, right? Uh, I'd be a pragmatist. I'd focus on story. And when science helps reinforce a story that protects human life, use it. Otherwise, I'm done being arrogant that Western thought is best thought. <laughs> Thank you. Well, oddly enough, uh, we actually ran out of recording time in this episode, so there were several more questions in Portland. Man, Portland had a lot of great questions. Uh, but the fact is we just ran out of time, so this is kind of an odd post-recorded ending to an Ask Science Mike Live. Uh, I am still on tour, as I mentioned at the top of the show, so go to findinggonthewaves.com slash tour to learn more about that. I'd love to see you at Ask Science Mike Live. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for his work producing this program, Andrew Galucky for all of his pre-production work, as well as organizing our Together Groups. If you'd like to find Science Mike listeners in your area, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Together icon. And of course, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon who make the show financially possible by donating every month. Thank you so much for that. And finally, I want to thank my friend Jeb writing the beautiful and obnoxious Ask Science Mike live theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.